Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the club's business and leadership forum, and your host for today's program, which is entitled, Why Great Workplaces Are Better for Employees, Investors, and Society. We invite our audience to visit us on the internet at commonwealthclub.org to learn more about the many fine program events that are held here at the club. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers, Emily Aries, Paul Herman, and Michael Bush. I want to tell you a little bit about the panel and their ideas about the workplace. Emily's first book, Bossed Up, is taking a research-driven, results-oriented approach to empowering women in the marketplace. She is the founder of Bossed Up, an organization that helps people beat burnout and craft healthy, sustainable careers. Paul Herman is a professor of sustainable finance at Presidio Graduate School. He's CEO and founder of HIP Investor Ratings and Portfolio. He has worked smartly to develop the methodologies for HIP impact ratings and HIP investment strategies for constructing socially responsible portfolios. Michael Bush is an entrepreneur, investor, teacher, author, media commentator, speaker, and wise man. He is the CEO of Great Places to Work, the global research and analytics firm that produces the annual Fortune 100 Best Companies to Work For list. So here to have a stimulating dialogue, we welcome our speakers. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, delightful to be together. And today we're going to talk about great workplaces, what makes a great workplace, how you can make a great workplace, uh, and what we can all do individually and together. Um, so let's kick this off early. Emily, yes. uh, you uh, work with companies. Uh, you immerse yourself uh, in workplaces. What? Uh, why are great workplaces important? Great question, Paul. So I'm so excited to be here today because I get to work on this issue from two different perspectives. One, I host training programs for the women who are looking to get out of a bad place to work. And I hear from them about what challenges they face, what's burning them out, and how they want to advocate for what it is that we want in our lives and careers to set us up for sustainable success. I also work with organizations, especially in tech, law, and finance, who are struggling to figure out the problem from the other end of the perspective, how to retain and develop top talent, women included, of course, but really all people who want the same thing to craft a happy, healthy, and sustainable career path. I think great places to work are important for two reasons. One, there's the business case, which we're going to talk a lot more about today. It's better for the bottom line of businesses to have happy, healthy, and engaged employees. But two, which I don't want to forget about as we have this very business-focused conversation is the moral argument. That's the world I want to live in. I want to live in the world where people have happy, healthy career paths, not just because that's what I want for myself, but that's what I want for my neighbors. That's what I want for my community. And knowing that happy, healthy workers are actually more productive, members of their workforce, but also members of society, puts this in a global perspective. If we want to tackle the biggest, most challenging, most scary existential issues that face our globe today, we need to tackle this issue from within companies, within governments, and within our world. Fantastic. Uh, Michael, how about you? What makes, uh, why are great workplaces important uh, from all your experience across uh, working with, engaging with, and certifying hundreds of small, medium, and large companies? Mm. Um, you know, I agree with everything that Emily said. Uh, the, we survey 10 million employees a year in 98 countries around the world, uh, 10,000 companies a year. So we know a lot about working people, and uh, the news isn't good. Uh, we know more about places that are not great places to work than places that are great places to work. So working conditions aren't good, even as the global economy boobs. It's important because, as Emily said, uh, businesses that are great places to work make a lot more money. 
And money is important. It's an important part of business. I agree with Emily on, as we say, it's better for business, better for people, and better for the world. Mm. I believe in the moral argument, too. But I find most CEOs don't. So they they don't pull out a tissue when you say that. When yeah. you say more profit, they pull out a tissue because <laughs> that, that moves them emotionally. Um, the moral imperative doesn't seem to do that. Uh, it doesn't seem to do that for shareholders either. Uh, so we say better for business, better for people, better for the world. Pick any one of those, and you should do the same series of things. Right. Uh, which is treat people in a certain way um, that's going to make them bring 100% of themselves to work and uh, be trusted at work and trust others at work. And that's going to be the best thing you could do for your customers. Super. Um, and uh, today, and today, I'll play the role of uh, player coach as well, not only moderating this conversation, uh, but contributing what, what we're learning from the investment community and from portfolios. Um, and of course, Bill Russell was a successful player coach taking basketball teams to the championship. So uh, building on what Emily and uh, Michael have said, uh, obviously, there's a financial case for it. Uh, Professor Alex Edmonds has studied the great places to work based on uh, Michael's organization's uh, ratings and rankings of bottom-up surveys from employees. And he's found that in financial terms, on a risk-adjusted basis, there's higher returns and lower risk. And this is the case not only in the U.S. over long periods of time, it's actually the case in dozens of countries around the world. So great workplaces can produce a higher financial benefit. In some cases, depending on the time period, as Russell Investments has analyzed, it could be up to double the performance of the S&P 500. So that's a compelling financial reason to pull out your tissue box as a CEO. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, in that analysis, as Alex Edmonds has done that first at my alma mater, Wharton School of Business, and now uh, in London, is there are two countries where that doesn't hold. And those countries are Germany and Denmark. And in Germany and Denmark, workers gain more of the value. And so the, the excess value of worker productivity and innovation flows to employees, not just to investors. And you have employees who are on the board at uh, German auto companies and in Danish companies uh, like Novo Nordisk. So, um, but as we've all attached, like people work at businesses, people are an asset, according to CEOs. Mm. Um, and, and CEOs will frequently say uh, people are our most important asset. So, Michael, is that true? Are people really an asset? And if so, how come people aren't on the financial statements in that way? Well, uh, that's what I was about to say. You know, you can't find them. So it's one of those things that people say, mm. uh, but they don't act like it's true. Uh -huh. If you look at their assets that are on the balance sheet, they treat them in a certain way. Right. Uh, they, but people they, are on the income statement. They're on the income uh, statement. People are on the cost. income statement uh, as okay. a cost, but but they're not an asset on the on the balance sheet. Right. And so, how would we do that? Like, doesn't that mean that connote that we'd have slavery? Like, companies would own people, or are they more like leases? That's actually happened before, but uh, I don't. I no, don't of think course. It, I don't so, think it's a really good idea. So, what's the oh, practical oh, implementation yeah, of that? Well, today? The, the practical uh, implementation is there's goodwill that's on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a va there's brand value that's on the balance sheet, mm -hmm. usually uh, w within the good goodwill calculation. How people are treated at work, the employee experience can also be valued yeah. on the balance sheet in a similar way. It, it's not very difficult to do. Um, it, it means that there needs to be uh, a metric for the employee experience, which I believe ex exists today. We happen to have one. Others uh, can have one as well. People know the relationship between the employee experience and the customer experience. Mm. People now know the, the relationship between the employee experience and earnings, the employee experience and market share, the employee experience on EBITDA, the employee experience on revenue. These things are all known. So it's pretty easy to place it there. And then just like everything else that's on the balance sheet, uh, the governance, uh, the board of directors should do what does not happen today, which is spend time talking about whether or not the executives are creating a great experience for all people who are working in the organization. Mm. You put those two components together, it's on the balance sheets, um, and now people are an asset. Right. The other metric that has to be talked about is employee retention, because in a competitive marketplace like the one we're in right now, if employees aren't getting what they need out of their current organization, they're going to go elsewhere and find it. And my whole organization and book is about how to advocate for getting what you want out of your career when your organization isn't being proactive about giving that to you. So it's not rocket science to measure the churn rate or the retention rate or how often you're having to expend 
precious resources of onboarding and training people. There's an architecture firm uh, in Denver where I call home that I've started talking with, haven't officially started working with, who is hiring like gangbusters and everyone in the industry is saying, wow, you guys are really growing at such a fast rate. The reality is they're not growing. They're replacing. They're replacing the talent that they're losing each and every single day. And if you want to talk bottom line metrics, that is an expensive number that everyone should care about. And it belies a deeper truth about employee uh, satisfaction, about feeling invested in, and about seeing a future for yourself at your organization. Great. Yeah. So it sounds like you're both talking about metrics uh, as to do that. And in the 1990s, the concept of the balance scorecard mm. uh, became more and more popular. So balance scorecard is pick up to five metrics for your company. Um, obviously, you probably want customers. Uh, I think everyone on stage is saying you need an employee metric mm. that we look at. Obviously, financials is one. And then you get to pick two more. Uh, and today, they might be things like climate action or you know emissions mm. and maybe something that gives you a strategic advantage, but uh, customers and employees being part of this metric system and board review. Um, the uh, people as an asset concept actually, as Michael said, has uh, academic uh, papers uh, written on this and actually applied to mainly companies in India. So um, to the extent, you know, as we shift to this next part of our conversation, think about the global implementation of great workplaces. But uh, Dr. Baruch Lev at NYU did his PhD thesis back in the 60s and three other t competing teams in the 70s on putting people on the balance sheet as an asset, whether that's historical cost or replacement cost. Uh, the Lev model is essentially take the future cash flows related to employees and discount them back. And when you apply this to a company like Infosys, which is the IBM uh, of the world that's based in India, and you take, which they did report in their 10K and financial statements, the value of human capital next to their accounting capital, book capital, book value capital. When you add that human capital value and that book value, it actually almost paralleled the market value for Infosys. Mm. Um, from when they did it in the late 90s for the following 15 years, which they've stopped. Okay, so let's talk about globally. What makes a workplace great not only here in the United States, but globally? Mm. What are examples maybe from India or Africa or Latin America? Mm. Do you want to Go take ahead. that? Okay. I think that perception matters. Perception is difficult, but possible to measure. Yeah. And the most important perception I hear from domestically, because that's really where I focused my research and work, has been the feeling of being invested in. You know when you're being invested in, in your public school experience, all the way into being an adult in the workplace. You have that sensation of, there's someone ahead of me who's taking me under their wing, who sees me for more than perhaps I even can see myself at this moment, and inspires me to keep learning and growing and not be afraid of asking vulnerable, courageous questions or seeking out the kind of support that I need to get ahead. We're not just talking about promotions and raises. We're talking about face-to-face -face connection. And our, in our increasingly digitally connected but personally isolated world, that is becoming a premium, right? That, that is a resource that's at a premium. FaceTime, quality time spent with their colleagues and coworkers. And what's interesting is um, this concept of not just mentorship, which I know we're going to talk more about, but apprenticeship. Seeing yourself as the master of your craft, has gone the way of the dodo, right? With shop class in a lot of ways. We not, we're often glamorizing the overnight success story, especially in startup culture. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing when creating a culture of sustainability, a culture of growth, a culture of courage at your workplace is about making sure everyone knows the narrative of their career trajectory is a long one. It's not about perfection. It's not about performing, perfecting, and pleasing everyone around you, as we are often taught in our very achiever-oriented culture in academics here in the United States. Instead, when you feel invested in, taken under someone's wing, being given a runway for you to develop your craft through trial and error, that to me is a key indicator that you feel that you're working for a great place to work. And it's not an easy thing to develop, but it can be systematically put in place in a very busy work culture where everyone feels overwhelmed. Everyone feels on the brink of burnout right now. But face-to-face -face time is a key foundation for not just personal improvement and workplace satisfaction, but a, a foundation of mental health. And we have to talk about 
um, mental health in our country and mental health in our workplaces, because that person to person connection, feeling seen and heard and respected is such an important foundation that is often overlooked, but that's what makes a great place to work in my book. Okay. And we're going to come back maybe to mental health. So Michael, in uh, the book of great workplaces for all, and in the systems and scorecards of the certified great workplaces, uh, you actually have factors that contribute to a great workplace. So what are those factors that make workplaces great and how are those the same or different globally? Um, the one thing, you know, if you take Emily's points on what's true domestically in the U S um, while industries might be a little bit of difference, you know, somebody's making an average of $250,000 a year in a role compared to $22,000 a, a year. Uh, there are some differences, but if you get to the fundamentals, they're the same and they're the same all the way around the world, which is this connection point that Emily is making that people want to be treated as a person that matters. Mm. And, and that's an experience that they have with the people that they work with and the people that they work for. The dominant experience is driven by who you work for. Mm -hmm. That's the dominant experience. It is true that people quit bosses. They don't quit the brand or the company. So people are seeking a connection, uh, which is to be listened to a certain way, to be spoken to a certain way, to be recognized and rewarded, to be developed, uh, to be welcomed, to be thanked, and so on. They're basic things that people would like. Um, and it makes them feel that they're doing something that matters. Mm. That's why people are treating them in, the, in that way. And that's what we measure. We ask the same 60 questions in 98 countries. So we know that people actually care about the same things, whether they're making $5 a day. And we have people we survey making $5 a day with no lunch break, but just a water break where they have to run down the hill and get water. And we have, we survey people who people are making $250,000 and complaining about their pay. Mm-hmm. So w- wide range, but the thing that, that uh, they all have in common is this basic need for connection that uh, largely comes from who they work for. So uh, th- that's, that's what we know. And, and a great place to work is one where trust is given from the employee to the people they work with and the people they work for. And, also given by leaders to the people that uh, work for them or work with them. So we spend most of our question set is measuring trust. That's what it's all about. Mm. It's all about trust. If a person is feeling trusted and you ask them, are promotions fair here? They will say yes. How do people get promoted? I don't know. That's what people will do. That's how you can measure perception. The, the and is that good? Is it good if they say, I trust the process, even if I don't know the process? It's awesome. Yeah. It, it, it's, really. absolutely, it's, it's absolutely awesome. The lack of information is uh, a good thing. Well, perception well, matters more than reality. It sure does. It, it, yeah. it absolutely does. It, it, it's awesome. Like because like in ancient Rome, everybody had to read the laws to know the laws. So what is it about Well, the trust? ending of that story wasn't so great, okay? Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't reference that one. But but in, in terms of, of, of working people and, and what they want, when, when a leader says, look, this is what we need you to do. Because this is the new direction for the organization. What every organization wants is for the people to move wholeheartedly in that direction. That's called agility. That's trust. It's it's trust without the facts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely without the facts. Mm -hmm. You can never have all the facts. But you can be treated in a certain way that makes you feel a certain way in the place that you work. And the point is, as Emily said, that you're cared for as a person. Mm -hmm. This is what it's all about. So the here's the thing. When you talk to a CEO – and you have this conversation and they go, how do I, how do I make more money? It's how you treat the people. Okay. Yeah. Is there another way? <laughs> okay. Everybody wants to find a different okay, does way. Does anybody actually say that? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, they do. They, and here's the way okay. they say it. Very interesting. <laughs> okay. That's what they say. Okay. All right. So, all right. That, that, that's what they say. All right. So let's go to the next level then. It's the case where uh, in, in engagement surveys. Yeah. Uh, engagement surveys come in at, on average, uh, in corporate environments. Not sure how this differs for small and midsize. Mm. Um, what per- think about this for yourself. What percent of the people you work with are engaged at work? What do you think that number is on a scale of 100%? Uh, and, uh, and so the answer usually is 20%. Everyone's sitting with their colleagues people, is very quiet just now. Right? And so that's one way to look at it is, okay, well, is only one out of five people that I work with engaged at work? Uh, and is that person me? Um, but another way to think about it is the way I like to think about it is everybody's engaged at work in some way. So the way I think about the 20% is 
only one day out of five, if you're working five mm. days a week, are you engaged. And so when that CEO uh, with the tissue box says, uh, very interesting, um, this may help to unlock it is if we could have people engage just one more day a week, just take it from Monday to Monday and Tuesday or Tuesday to Tuesday and Wednesday, that's doubling productivity, isn't it? Mm. So what about this? What about like the proportion of time that people are engaged, not whether they're committed or not 100% because there's different issues people are engaged about. So what do you think, Michael, Emily? Um, you want to go, Emily? Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking along the lines of the fact that if we take a humanist approach to work, we need to make it okay for people to not be engaged five days a week, mm. which is a, a controversial thing to say up here, perhaps, yeah. but we have other things going on in our lives. Do we not? Yes. Is this not a radical notion that we have families and four-legged fur babies and partnerships and volunteerism and activism we want to be engaged in and maybe a hobby here or there. Do we all remember hobbies from back in the day before they all became side hustles? Uh, but it, it, it needs to be okay for us to not be striving for 100% productivity. I certainly think more than 20% engagement is an excellent goal to strive towards. But the way that I think we have to look at work, especially in a highly uh, growing, I should say, remote workforce. I think it was Amazon that just announced they're hiring 5,000 full-time, full-benefits remote workers uh, in our country right now. We have to look at what does an engaged employee really mean? Because in the past, having your butt in a seat from 8 to 6 nowadays, or back in the day, 9 to 5... being there was the number one priority. And the worker who gets their work done faster gets more work, right? <laughs> so if we think about engagement, we have to think about it beyond the five-day work week paradigm. I just did a podcast about a concept known as job sharing, the least popular method to work-life balance, if you want to call it that, in our country right now. We look at adding cafeterias and ping pong tables and vacation plans and unlimited vacation and how that sometimes backfires. Job sharing is the concept of taking one full-time job and giving it to two people, two people who have families to raise on half of the work week, who work a three-day work week. And I think for the future of our economy, especially as mass automation comes hurling our way, we have to expand our concept of engagement in not just the workplace, but in the world so that people as human beings have a right to happy, healthy life, not just a robotic. Yeah, this is an emerging concept of not just fitting people to the work, but fitting work the work to, to the, the people. people. Yeah, yeah, so that's Im- important. Absolutely. Um, okay, so Michael, what do you think? <laughs> um, uh, oh, topic. Well, I, I think that the, like, in engagement, um, that it's the employee experience. Uh-huh. Okay. Because, um, mm. in, engagement is an old model and an old metric. Um, the, the employee experience is knowing if you respect a person, you know, they have a full life, uh-huh. you know, they have a, pe- a pet at home, you know, the, uh, or, uh, or hobbies or parents or parents to take care of and so on. And, and, up, you know, rent to pay, uh, they can be behind in, in rent payments. Uh, all these things, that's a person mm-hmm. who handles tremendous responsibility every day. And uh, you, you treat that person with respect because you know that. So you don't tailor and curate information to present to them. You don't tell them a part of the story because they actually get the whole story. When you treat somebody that way, which is honest and, and with respect, they know you know they have other things going in their life. So you don't expect them to come to work and check and compartmentalize and leave their life outside the door. That's disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, an employee that you want to bring 100% of themselves to work because you're paying them and you're benefited, you have to treat them in a respectful way. The other thing is you have to treat them fairly. This is equally important because if you treat some people like they are full, hum- fully formed human beings and some like they aren't mm-hmm. based on job type 
or who they are or what they are or what they do in the organization, you have a real big problem now mm-hmm. because there is no respect when there's a lack of fairness mm-hmm. and, and people feel like there's a disequity in the way in the way people are treated. So those two things go hand in hand. And, and if you're doing that in a fair way, everybody can be themselves at work. Without it, they're going to start hiding parts of themselves. And now you're getting to productivity and those kinds of problems. So it's, it's just a reality of, of, of where we are. The world's moving in this direction at different paces um, as you move around the world. Because if you talk to CEOs, which we do, um, we did a survey, uh, went around and talked to CEOs two years ago. What's the most important thing in, in terms of as you as the CEO look forward in your business? What do you need more of in order to succeed? Innovation. Mm. Period. Every single time. Innovation. So uh, we studied that. We leaned in on that and realized that the, best way to get, the best way to get a phenomenal idea is to get a thousand ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's volume of ideas. The only way to get the highest volume of ideas is everybody in your company who has a smartphone, which is everyone including in you can go into the jungle where we survey everybody has a smartphone they all need to be innovating on your behalf and they're only going to innovate on their behalf if they trust you they 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 matter they offer you an idea if you don't do the idea you let them know why they didn't do the idea which companies never do suggestions everyone you put this suggestion in the box or on the automated tool you never find out this is why we didn't do it we looked at it we didn't evaluate it so now you ask for another suggestion just like surveys they won't do the next one. Uh-huh. They will just go, screw this, because nobody's listening to me. Nobody cares about what I think. The whole thing weakens and craters. You're better off not doing suggestions and better off not doing surveys. Right. So, so uh, companies need to innovate, though. And there's actual academic evidence that backs up what you're saying, Michael. So North Carolina State just published a paper uh, in 2018 that looked at the diversity of employees. And what they found was companies that are more diverse... Uh, gender, ethnic, age, actually uh, have twice the patents filed uh, per size of the company than the ones that are not. So there's actual both business case. It speaks to innovation. Mm-hmm. Maybe innovation is the bridge to uh, uh, the getting better than a very intriguing answer from CEOs. Um, but I think what we should all understand, uh, even though you know robots and artificial intelligence is coming, people are 55 percent of the cost structure of companies right. on average. You know, 55 more than half of your uh, uh, financials are people, and most likely more than 50 percent of your financials. Are come from people. So when you compare the stock market value to the book value on the balance sheet, which doesn't include people, uh, for the S&P 500, that's 84%. So 84% is the amount of stock market value that's not on the balance sheet. And CEOs and most boards don't know what this 84% is. Uh, And of course, the main driver is people. People invent products. People serve customers. People work with each other. All right, so let's get tangible here. Think about what's the best workplace practice you've seen or experienced. Mm. Um, and this could be a client. This could be at work. But, like, what's that, what's that tangible thing? And uh, feel free to use names if you can to make, you know, like tangible stories we can uh, retell when we uh, leave this event and go persuade our collaborators to make better workplaces. Absolutely. Well, there's one example that comes to mind um, that was actually profiled in the Harvard Business Review. And it was a practice that came out of the Boston Consulting Group, pretty massive organization that was struggling with retention, especially among mid to senior level women. And talk about diversity and inclusion. There's been some interesting research um, that just came out earlier this year in February that shows Yes, diversity and inclusion is a driver of performance, but only in the context in that reinforces gender diversity or diversity writ large across the spectrum as a moral imperative, right? As a normative value of the organization. And so even though there were lots of, there was lots of talk at BCG about inclusion, the reality of the day-to-day practices were that women were leaving and men were being promoted. Men were staying and seeing a future. Right. And BCG is formerly called Boston Consulting Group. So right. This is a professional environment. Yes, exactly. And to solve this problem, they did a ton of exit surveys, as one is uh, familiar with when you leave an organization, and found that the number one reason women were leaving was a low score on 
the rating of feeling like they had a good mentor or that they were being invested in, like anyone was taking them under their wing. Once again, we come back to that perception of being invested in, respected, cared for as a human being, but also as your professional future is rolling out before you. So they instituted a program known as Apprenticeship in Action, not the Women's Diversity and Inclusion Program, but the program across the company that reinforced the importance of apprenticeship as a value among the managers in particular. They gave managers a toolkit with prescriptive advice to follow on how exactly to treat your workers as apprentices because they are masters working on their craft, right? Like this is a a process of development of seeing yourself as a long-term investment in the organization. How does one master the craft of consulting? It's a difficult thing to pick up on unless you are invested no, in you have mentors, senior. Like yeah. I did at McKinsey. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a formal mentorship program in the era of Me Too, mind you, where there have been reports that we have to counter um, that men are reporting, feeling unsafe, unsure about mentoring younger women. This is a problem for all of us, uh, especially women who want to be mentored by those in power in a very male and very pale power structure that we're operating in. And so they instituted a, a set of guidelines across the board that increased the promotion rate amongst mid to senior level women by 22% over the course of five years. Not only that, it reduced their churn, their uh, their loss of employees by five to 10% over the same period of time. So men and women, having gone through this apprenticeship and action program, both reported feeling more invested in, seeing a future for themselves at the Boston Consulting Group, and it benefited the organization's bottom line, of course, as well. So if we want to really think about diversity and inclusion as a competitive strategy, we have to tackle it across the spectrum of gender. But we have to make it safe for all parties involved to feel like there are not only a normative value placed on that kind of emotional labor, right, investing in our colleagues, but also that there is an expectation that this is a normal thing to do. We shouldn't have to have, I don't know, our wife present to have a dinner with a female colleague. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. All right, Michael, what are good case studies or examples of best workplaces or best workplace practices from the... Thousands, millions of people you've surveyed and the thousands of companies. Um, I think that's a great one. Uh, BCG is a customer. Uh, we know them well. They're, you know, on our 100 best list. Um, but I don't want to talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because we just leapt over something. Yeah. Um, which is businesses that treat people with respect in a fair way, in an equitable way, make more money. People that have diverse cultures, diversity of thought, make more money perform better. Why doesn't everybody do it? Mm. Okay. Which is the thing I don't want to leaf over by talking about best practices because we're going to talk about worst practices. uh, too. Okay. Well, (laughs) I'm definitely not going to be dropping names there. (laughs) That'd be bad, real bad for business. Um, so, but running down the hill to get water once a day, uh, is, is an example of that. The, the, I think the, the the issue here is well, what why... is the best practice from the people who don't skip over it? What transformation have they made, or what the transformation transformation that they've made is number one, they aren't afraid to say mm. our people are more important than our customers, our employees, our employees yeah. are more important than our customers. They aren't afraid to say it, which yeah. most CEOs are afraid to say it. Mm. The fact is, it's true. Okay, and it's certainly in a great place to work in a high performing workplace, but they're afraid to say it. They're just afraid to say it, which they lack courage and they need to say it. And their people know they what's the downside of saying that the downside of saying it is people think, oh, we're not customer centric. Oh, we're not customer focused. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, we don't want the customer to think that our people are more important than them, Mm -hmm. which their customers know their people are more important than them. 
Mm. Their customers know the customer gets great products and services from people who are having an outstanding time at this thing called work. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets it except executives and CEOs who think they have to keep repeating the business school mantra (laughs) mantra about shareholder value and customer centricity. Yeah. Okay. So there's the problem. So you flip that. Once you flip that, it changes the way you behave. You start developing leaders mm. as, as, as apprentices. This is what great organizations do. This is the best practice. You say you can keep hitting your sales targets. You can keep exceeding the marketing numbers. You can dominate in the market. If your people aren't having an outstanding experience, you're not going to be an executive here. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. So now, how often does that happen? Like, Never. Okay. So, okay. But I can give you a few examples. I know some examples where it's actually happening, but this is the best practice. This is more important to me than pet insurance and flexible work schedules and telecommuting and Zoom technology and uh, massages and pedicure Tuesdays and millennial Mondays and baby boomer Thursdays. Okay. This is the thing that makes a difference. Those other things are just not addressing the real issue, which either you believe in people first mm-hmm. or you don't. And if you don't, it's not going to be a great place to work for all. It's going to be a great place to work for some. Uh-huh. And the same old some, by the way. Yeah. Okay, so you, this is I not a riskless in? strategy. Well, no, be, um, One in a bridge. example, okay. Um, this is not a riskless strategy because there is a potential risk. And uh, so sorry, I put on my professor hat sometimes as I do at Presidio Graduate School when I teach <laughs> sustainable finance and multi-sector finance. Um, are there risks to that? And so some people would say there's risk to that because, oh, the employees are first. I don't have to pick up that customer call. Or uh, as I've talked to friends at uh, large enterprises, including like Google and Wells Fargo, they say, oh, my millennial employees aren't going to come in because um, they want to sleep in. They don't want to have a meeting before 10. Okay. Well, Paul, I got to stop. So there's some risk. Okay. You're citing Wells Fargo. Okay. Seriously? Okay. So, so, so you're like, like, oh, an employee, oh, uh, I'm first. So now I'm not going to, that's an idiot employee. They don't exist. Okay, the, they those do are, exist. Those are bad they, hires. They, There's very few. Right. So There's very, very this, few. How the, in the risk is not doing it. But there's what you there's what you know, it's like uh, it's like parenting and uh, there's what you say and there's what people hear. Um, and so it's what you do. do you, it's what you do. But Just like also, as a parent, it's what you, you do. do it, people hear it first. So you could do it different ways. You could do it first, and then people mm-hmm. just interpret it. You could say what you're going to do, do it, and then reinforce positive behavior. But, um, I mean, th- we all know there's human nature, uh, and all of our best laid plans don't always come to fruition. So what are the behaviors, practices, systems that pursue the philosophy and strategy that you're describing that protect against the risks some of these people aren't bad hires. They're good hires, but they have a different frame mm-hmm. of what balances, especially in a post-2001, post-2008 world, because millennials grew up you know, in their youth uh, seeing uh, you know, terrorism on, on 9-11 and then living through yet another financial crisis. So there's a different frame on this balance. And so how do you say that in the way that you want it heard and people acted upon? I it's, think that's it's, a fair question. It's, it's based on trust. Uh, and so... I got a thousand people doing work all around the world right now, mm-hmm. all different time zones. I'm not worried about what they're doing. And I trust them a hundred percent. I don't need to monitor what they're doing. I don't even think about it. You either trust people or you don't. And when you trust them, that's why there's no risk. If you don't trust them, now there's a risk. You can calculate some kind of risk or something like that. This isn't just me thinking this way in the way I run my company of a thousand people. Other great leaders feel the exact same way. If you have a bad hire, you have a bad hire. That's management. Okay. And you deal with that in terms of management. You're, you're a bad hire. You're here. Somehow you snuck in and see you later. Okay. And, and that's what you do. But that is very few people. I'm telling you, we do this all around the world. There are very few bad hires. Uh, and, and companies that, that have a habit okay, of... Okay, so uh, how does that happen? Because people are not... And Emily, feel free to chime in here. How does not having a bad hire... 
I didn't mention millennials. I did. <laughs> so <laughs> how do you uh, how do you ensure the greatest hires? Right. Um, and avoiding bad hires. Well, first, I want to underscore the idea of putting your employees first. There are two concrete examples I think we can all relate to. One, the medical community. This is a community that lives and dies by patient first philosophy. And how does that make us feel when we are going in to be operated on whereby doctors and medical professionals have some of the highest rates of alcoholism, the lowest numbers of sleep, the highest rates of burnout as almost any other industry in our nation? That is a problem we need to solve. Then we look at the airline industry. And I, just for full disclosure, am a uh, stockholder in and big fan of Southwest Airlines. What is the difference between flying Southwest Airlines and flying basically any other airline? What's like the number one difference in your experience with the folks who are running that flight? They're heavy. They're alive. They're human beings. They're making jokes. They don't look like they are just sending you eye daggers to sit down and shut up and not asking for anything. Because being a flight attendant is not an easy job. But they are cracking jokes on the, you know, whatever, on the on the flight before you take off. That is the implementation of trust in your employees and your frontline folks and the implementation of an employee first strategy. And it absolutely trickle down, trickles down. This is a way to flip trickle down economics for us for a moment here. It trickles down to the customer experience. So when you take care of the employee experience, it results in a happier, better customer experience as well. Seeing those two things as at odds with each other is a very zero sum way of looking at that pie. And I think if we want medical professionals, pilots, people who have our lives in their hands, the people who build, I don't know, Boeing airplanes to be well-rested, to be well-paid, to have basic human needs taken care of, we need to value that employee experience first. I completely dodged your question, but I hope you'll forgive me because I had to share those couple of examples. Dodge. And also the safest airlines in the world and the only one that's been profitable every quarter in For its existence. 25 years, yeah. Cheers to Southwest Airlines. There you go. Hey. This is not sponsored, but Boom. it should Dang. be Call Me <laughs> <Yeah>. Southwest. <laughs> All right, we're going to take questions in about 10 minutes. Um, so think about what questions you might want to have answered. Um, and, okay, so let's focus on what uh, people who are here can do, people mm. who are listening to this podcast can do, as they share it inside their organization to gather coalitions to do. What can individuals do uh, individually, and what do you need the help of others to do? So, mm. Good Emily. Okay, well, I'll put my activist hat on because for full disclosure, I started off my career with my political science degree in hand, ready to save the world uh, and became the youngest state director on working on behalf of newly elected President Barack Obama a decade ago. So I really started my career advocating and helping individual everyday citizens build power because that is a thing we can grow, right? The grassroots nature of bottom-up power building and consensus building to help make their voices heard in Washington to help change the world. And that is the same philosophy that I bring to advocating for yourself at work. It starts with a three-step paradigm that I highly encourage us all to internalize. One is there is an inherent risk associated with acting like a boss, as I like to put it, right? Cultivating this identity that you have the ability to change your circumstances is not an easy thing to do, but it starts with acting differently. Leadership action means calling that meeting when you realize everyone in your office is miserable and sending those eye daggers at the boss every day as he walks in at 1030 in the morning with his dog and no one else can walk in at 1030 with his dog, with their dog, maybe her dog. <laughs> so calling that conversation together, hosting that meeting, saying, hey, everybody, this is an individual who can do an this. Individual or? can do this. Okay. And then so that's a risk. That is an inherent risk. Step one, taking leadership action, which is inherently risky. Mm -hmm. Step two is internalizing or not internalizing, gauging the reaction you get from others. Mm -hmm. Because we all hope that folks show up to that meeting. But we've all had the experience of calling that community forum, putting those chairs out and having no one fill them, which makes me very happy to see all of you here, right? There is a rejection that requires no action on anyone's part. A rejection is just maintaining the status quo. So you take that first risk, you call that conversation together, no one validates your move and your internal sense of leadership gets chipped away. 
So that third step of cultivating this boss identity, taking strategic action, gauging the response you get from others, whether positive or negative. And then the third step is internalizing what you're going to take away from that. Is it, I'm just not capable of building consensus. No one will ever listen to me. My voice isn't being heard here. Or is it, I need to do this differently next time. And when we can look at our strategies and tactics with this sort of design thinking approach, right? This iterative process of how am I going to do this better next time? It gives us the confidence to continue to act, to okay. take that round and again. Do you need to choose the word boss? Because this also sounds like coalition leader or movement leader. Yeah, leader. Because boss has some implied... Uh, hierarchical connotations. Well, I, I like the term bossed up, which is a hip hop term. Sure. The which name comes of your book. From, yeah. I mean, bossed up is different than boss. We're not talking about management theory here for a second. We're talking about hip hop. Okay. And if you want to understand what it looks like to own your power, believe in your own come up story, be the agent of change in your own life story in the face of systemic injustice, look no further than all art forms that are derived from the African-American experience, including hip hop. So the term bossed up comes straight out of the African-American experience, which is, yeah, the cards are not dealt fairly, but I'm going to play my hand to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to allow the world of oppression that we're all operating in to slow my role and to keep me quiet. And so I, I use the term boss identity, the research on the term and it's the cultivating your leadership identity. Uh-huh. But however you got to get bossed up, it yeah. starts with taking, right. taking action. But words matter to the people who hear them. And, oh, I'm glad and for the, the way question. that yeah. they're implemented. Absolutely. So, f- you know, figuring out the right vocabulary to solve the problem is part of the solution. Okay. So, uh, Michael, what can people do tangibly today? You know, today, right after this panel, tomorrow, this week, what can people do? I would read Emily's book. <laughs> I I would double click bang. Okay. I think that that's absolutely what, that's absolutely what it is. Uh, it's about that self responsibility Mm -hmm. and, um, it's about abandoning the victim mindset and, and looking in the mirror and that's who's responsible. Uh, the playing field isn't level. You better run hills. That's mm. what my father told me. You better run hills. It's not level. So I ran hills. Okay. So so that's it. Um, and and when you're treated disrespectfully, move on. Yeah. Okay. Move on. It's like yeah, I'm listening, but you're updating your LinkedIn profile. Okay. Get get a, get a move on. So th- th- that's what I would say to anyone. And I believe in this. I I I believe in this completely. Um, so if you're a leader. Um, you, you know, or, or can influence leaders. Yeah, I believe in surveying employees. I, I believe in finding a way for employees to to communicate in an anonymous way about the experience that they're having at work. And once you do that, you're automatically holding leaders accountable because mm-hmm. the thing that wrecks a culture is doing a survey and leaders do nothing. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I love it. Oh, okay. It's just, it <laughs> craters. It goes the other way. Um, and so that's a great accountability. So, um, uh, you know, I, I would recommend that. And then, uh, it, so it's getting your organization to, uh, really create a, a you know, a, a way of listening. And then for leaders, it's realizing that your job is not about you being the leader that you always wanted to be. Uh, it's about being the leader that your people need you to be. Mm-hmm. So you got to want to change every day. And and th- that's how you create a great place to work for all. That's what a for all leader is. Leaders who do that, we have the data on it, can lead millennials, baby boomers, people of any age, tenure, gender. They erase all of that because they treat people as humans. Yep. They don't treat – they recognize they might be part of a group based on some definition of a group, but they treat people as people on a one-on-one basis. Yep. And, uh, and they can get that person to do almost anything. And here's the thing that those people say in the survey. I'm here because of my boss. Mm-hmm. I'm here because of my manager. In crazy situations, mm-hmm. you will see people say – this, I can't believe you're here. And they will say, I'm here because of my boss. That's fantastic. Because of what they, this boss creates for me. Okay. So uh, please uh, uh, go up to the microphone if you have questions. Uh, one thing I want to cover before uh, we take our first question is, um, you know, additional ideas of what you can do. So um, as Emily and Michael have described, and obviously we all have our books here. So Bossed Up, Great Workplace for All, Hip Investor Book. Um, these are all tangible ways that you can take action at work as a manager, um, uh, and how you buy and how you invest. Um, And so part of one of the things you can do at work to make a great workplace, because this really shifts it, I was uh, presenting on um, 
uh, as presenting on environmental, social, and governance issues to boards of director, uh, directors of boards, public company boards at the Stanford Directors College. And uh, one of the suggestions was think about your 401k plan because it touches everybody in the organization, small, medium, uh, large organization. Those are the choices you're presenting to employees about the future. Your retirement plan is your future. Your 401k plan sometimes even, ha- even has ways to uh, attract you to saving more money. They might be additional dollars that the employer puts in. But the choices inside that um, may not be the choices that reflect your values or even the mission of the organization. So when I brought this up, it happened to be the CEO of United Airlines was in the audience. And so when we talked afterwards, um, he said, thanks for bringing up the 401k. I didn't realize that we could do that as a, as a large company. Um, and there are ways to test this through. Um, uh, there's a website called Clean Portfolios that uh, you can go to. Uh, it has some companies preloaded in it. Uh, Stoke is a company here in San Francisco, S-T-O-K. They have a fossil-free, gun-free, palm oil-free. They also have a fossil-free push-button portfolio um, that we help them with uh, at HIP. And then As You Sow, who's going to speak at the one of the next Commonwealth Club meetings, they have something called Fossil-Free Funds. Uh, GenderEqualityFunds.org and DeforestationFreeFunds.org. So if you go to FossilFreeFunds.org, uh, GenderEqualityFunds.org, and the like, mm. you can see what are my choices aligned with the world that I want to live in. Okay, so uh, questions, anybody? I get to ask the first question. Great, welcome. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, uh, Emily, um, one of the things that I'm um, aware of is that you just had a great blog post over the 4th of July about being an activist. Yes. And I'm wondering how being committed to something greater than ourselves Mm. also changes things. Great question. Thank you for it. So I have a twice a week podcast, the Bossed Up podcast, that I also write out on my blog. And this 4th of July, first of all, congratulations. It's Tuesday after July 4th holiday and you are all at a thing which is a commendable achievement in and of itself. So way to be here. Um, I think there's no more patriotic act than getting involved in devoting your most precious resource, not money, but your time to furthering the objectives of any campaign or coalition or initiative that you believe in. Because for all the talk of how companies can change the world and how our corporate cultures can be culture changers, the reality is that our governing bodies also must keep up. And very rarely do they. So we need everyday activists and citizens to be involved. As an entrepreneur in Colorado, I've joined um, the Small Business Majority Organization based in uh, D.C., but has a chapter in Colorado, and uh, Good Business Colorado, which is a coalition of entrepreneurs and small business owners who are representing small business interests at the Colorado State House in Denver. And that's a very intimidating thing for most people to go to our state house and make our voices heard amongst a bunch of lawmakers when we're not quite sure how it works. And so it's important for me in that blog post, in that podcast, and as a part of my everyday work to break down those barriers through the training and development work that I do every day, whether it's coming to train individuals and how to tell their story in a way that inspires action or how to be a more assertive communicator in your own community, in your own government and in your own company. But also at the very foundation to answer your question and to wrap things up, because I tend to, I could talk all day about this if we're being real. Um, the most important foundation, or not the most important, but one of the core foundations to a stable mental health, one of the four things that prevents you from burning out just to break them down, we can't have a lack of purpose if we're going to prevent burnout. So you have to have purpose-driven work in your life, whether it's what yields a paycheck or not. If you're cashing in that paycheck every day to do work that doesn't light you up, that doesn't mean you're going to burn out. That's not a deal breaker. So long as you're deriving a sense of purpose elsewhere in your life through your volunteerism, through parenting, through community involvement, then there's a lack of rest a lack of community, and a lack of, what did I say? Oh, agency, the feeling of having control over your everyday choices. So to audit yourself to prevent burnout, not only do we need to look at a, a rest, how much rest and renewal you're getting, how much agency and control you have over your daily circumstances, and how much community you feel connected with others, 
but a purpose that you are deriving from the work that you do. And that's where activism can really fill a void if you're not deriving that sense of purpose and contributing to something greater in your nine to five. I have one more question. This one is for Michael. And we have talked a lot about um, the need for trust and care in the workplace. Um, We haven't talked so much about the climate crisis and the extent to which that's affecting all of us, certainly not equally. But my, my question about it is we've had several programs here on Drawdown uh, and things that can be done. Do you think that there's a relationship between the companies that are paying attention to this idea and whether they're great companies to work? Is there a correlation? There's a high correlation. Um, the, the, the CEOs and leaders who are putting people first or quietly putting people first – you know, meaning they might talk outside one way and they talk a different way inside, which also can work, um, are, are uh, there's something in their values uh, about looking at things beyond just, just EBITDA. And, and they have a purpose. Um, and they have a, a view of the world that enables them to see uh, the people around them and support and care for the people around them. And those people tend to also care about the world around them. So they make the connection, better for business, better for people, better for the world. Mm. It's, it's natural for them. They don't have to get talked into it. They don't need data sources to reject. Um, this, is, yeah. this is a belief. So there's a very high correlation. So if you, if you look at our list, the companies on our list, mm-hmm. look at their, their track record uh, in terms of what they're doing in their community. Look at, look at their foundations and, and, and what they fund, mm-hmm. uh, their, their contributions to, to, to the homeless, to the environment, uh, to carbon neutrality, et cetera. Very, very high correlation. Uh, I'm Ed Fraunheim. I'm Michael's colleague, a great place to work, and uh, excited to be here with, with the conversation. And I'm curious to hear both from Emily and Michael and Paul about kind of the importance of innovation in, in terms of a great place to work going forward. Because I, in some of our research – uh, it's not just the CEOs that, that are talking about innovation as important, but employees increasingly seem to care. It's something that kids are taught. They want to be makers. Um, and I'm so I'm love to hear about your thoughts about it, whether that's going to be an important thing going forward for every employee to feel like they can participate in innovation. Mm. What a great question. And your name again? Ed. Ed. Thank you, Ed, for that wonderful question. This is part of the reason we have to bring back shop class. So first I have to acknowledge that I'm biased because I am married to a maker uh, who is a burnt out architect turned digital fabricator who now works programming in 3D space, these giant hundreds of thousands of dollars worth robots to build custom fabrication kitchens and cabinets and sculpture work. And that's the exciting line of work that he's found himself in because he is literally on the cutting edge of his industry. And he benefited from having shop class and having maker spaces and programs devoted to the craft that is your career back in the day before they were all eliminated. So it it goes back to my philosophy on everyone being invested in with that design thinking approach. Have we heard of design thinking, right? It's like product design, this idea that you take an idea, you beta test it, you see what's working and what's not, and you try again. Companies that involve that way of thinking and that way of working into their everyday systems and structures, which by the way, starts with active listening, um, which I know Michael talks a lot about, you know, Involving everyone in those conversations is one way to bring innovation up and down the entire paradigm. So you can not only improve the way you're working internally, but of course, improve the outcomes, the products, the services, the customer experience as well. Uh, I'll just give a seven word answer. Don't be a workaholic, be a missionaholic. Mm. And so focus on work that uh, motivates you. And uh, I received an email from one of my former, uh, current and former mentors yesterday because he uh, did make that transition. And then, um, uh, and then he wrote in parentheses after, you know, going from uh, software, security software to uh, importing Burgundy wines, uh, which he's done his whole life. Um, he said, who's the mentor now? <laughs> so don't be a workaholic, be a missionaholic. It's the most California example. I love that. <laughs> So I just wanted to get back to hiring and just asking once again, what can we do to make sure that we're hiring better people and the best 
talent that we can find, but also kind of maybe weeding out some of those hires that might be problematic later down the line. And really, what can HR do and recruiting? Yeah. Um, so we, we do a lot of work on that. Um, and there's a, a, actually a, a, a disturbing trend uh, over the last two years, which makes sense, which is employees feel that management is not doing a good job at bringing uh, new employees into the organization that are working at the level that they are needed once they're brought into the organization. So it, it's, it's a question that we ask. And uh, what that's telling us is that, uh, which is true in full employment, which is where we are in, in the U S um, the bar's lower and it's showing up and people know it uh, because people are just desperate to get someone just get them. Are they breathing? Take them. Okay. Just take them, take them. Yeah, but they, take them. Okay. So that, that phenomenon is a real thing. Um, and so you are introducing risk into the business. You have to know it and you have to turn the management up. You got to turn the first 90 day review up. Mm. You got to turn that up and you got to be ready to manage and you got to be ready to separate it. So these are courageous things that companies are not good at, but they have to get good at it, especially in this time because attrition's higher as a result and you should expect it. Uh, in terms of, uh, how do you hire, uh, right? The companies that are the best at it in the world hire based on values. It's based on values. The, it's just the, the, the skills of the person, the proven track record of the person, the experiences, those are X's in a box compared to the values. And what you have to do is communicate the values, which companies don't do. They don't do it. They interview, they fly right over it. You check the website and then they move. You have to have a tangible way for everybody on the interview team to interview based on the values of the companies. Because when you terminate with the employee, other than the bad hire who technically is not proficient, mm. and so you just really took a risk there, and you probably knew it when you did it, um, other than that, the disconnection is due to values. There's something about this person, the way they talk, the way they respond, uh, the way they contribute, the way they don't contribute, the way they talk to others, et cetera. It's a values mismatch. It's not that the person isn't able to code, you know, at, at a proficient level. So um, it's um, using the values to hire. It's onboarding, welcoming the person and making sure they're feeling great. Computers ready, laptops ready, space is all worked out. And somebody reaches out to them as a human being saying, we're happy you're here and you're doing that repeatedly and really keeping an eye on the first 90 days. I have to add a very unsexy answer to your question here, which is so simple. And it is pay your people more because we are operating at basically full employment. And just because people have jobs does not mean that wages are rising in the rate that they should be. And as the millennial on the stage who the Wall Street Journal called as part of the generation that is, quote, in worse financial shape than every preceding living generation and may never recover due to our hyper uh, educated, extremely indebted, uh, started our entire career trajectory in the midst of the Great Recession, which taught employers how to do more with less. We have not recovered. And I am happy for my Gen Z employees and Gen Z counterparts in the workforce who are not entering the workforce with the same conditions. But the millennial managers who are now middle managers have not yet recovered from the financial hits that we took a decade ago. And that, if you really want to recruit top talent, start paying them more because our wages have not reached the same height as our employment numbers have. And that needs to change. And I'll add uh, one quick thing, seven words again. Um, the three values that we have at HIP are, one, uh, at HIP Investor, are analytical rigor, two, collaborative entrepreneurship, and three, this came from our clients, nice people network. And so values, uh, like what can you see every day? It's not only how you feel, but how you apply them. So analytical rigor, collaborative entrepreneurship, and nice people network are tangible enough where people filter out. Um, I just have a follow-up question oh, about values. Do you think that it's possible for people to train and develop values if they're not quite there at the beginning? Or No. Not? 
Okay. <laughs> Everyone in the audience is shaking I'm their just head. Curious. <laughs> the answer is unanimous okay. no. Last question. Okay, right? last Thank, one. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Michael, I was intrigued by your thing about trust. I've often I've heard uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett say that they manage to the point of abdication and they've got I think about 400,000 employees now. So your comments, well taken. They've been pretty successful too. Paul, I was intrigued by your, I work in the area of benefits and I was intrigued by your comment about uh, the United Airlines CEO responding to 401k. Even in a much smaller organization uh, than the United Airlines, the CEO would typically not even be on, an, on a committee evaluating or monitoring the 401k. So I'm just curious, as a value system, if you were, and hopefully there are you know, people in the HR, finance, and CEOs or owners of even smaller organizations, and for the other two as well, what would you say to them about adding these values or, or making sure these values are incorporated in the retirement plan? Because oftentimes I see in a practical sense, other benefits are used uh, more frequently and get more attention. So sometimes the 401k is kind of the, you know, the redheaded stepchild. So uh-huh. if you can just, you know. Right. No, so this is a, st- a step that a, a- Having a sustainable 401k or a fossil-free uh, 401k uh, speaks to what Emily called out about catching up. Um, and so 401ks, when designed well, can help achieve that. You can have opt-in versus opt-out 401ks. You can have matching. Uh, you can set up some innovative matching with it. But what happened at Stoke here in San Francisco was before there was a fossil-free 401k, which, by the way, the employees had uh, suggested, um, their participation rate, the number of employees participating was 14%. When the fossil-free choices were added to the 401k, that went in year one to 95% and in year two to 100%. Wow. Nationwide, millennials invest in their 401k about 22%. Um, so this 100% uh, of millennials, Gen Zers, uh, and a Gen Xer um, uh, was achieved. And then the next year, they said, it's great to have all these choices, but can I just have a push-button uh, fossil-free uh, target date uh, portfolio? So we added that. And today, 95% of people at Stoke, which is about 50 people now, 95% of them have some or all of their money in that push-button portfolio. So the company can make it easy. And the mission at Stoke is to make the world better through high-performance buildings and real estate. And uh, so when you're saving for your future, you want the same thing. As the millennial pair, I must add to underscore my pay your people more point, investing in a 401k is a hidden privilege. We don't always look at it as such for folks who are so busy paying off our educations. The idea of investing in a 401k is out of reach for a lot of my peers. Um, so we have to make that up by increasing wages so that we can all participate in such a wonderful fund. Thank you so much for this wise, energetic, smart fun panel. Uh, I wanted to thank Emily, Michael, and Paul, and then our audience here at the club, as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming.